Welcome to the podcast, Authors of the Pacific Northwest, where I connect authors with their readers. We also talk all about the author's inspiration, their journey to publication, and the authors will educate me and you, the listener, all about the business of writing. I'm your host, Vicki J. Carter, also known as The Author's Librarian. Hi there, listeners. It's the host and producer, Vicki J. Carter, here of this podcast, The Authors of the Pacific Northwest. And before we jump into the episode, I wanted to stop real quickly and share with you the newest project that I'm working on. If you are an author, I think you might be interested in it. I have a YouTube channel that I just launched called The Author's Librarian on YouTube. And on that YouTube channel, I am going to share with you free accessible resources that you can use to help you with researching. I'm going to give you tips. I'm also interviewing librarians and I'm writing a book to help authors with researching. So I hope you find me there on that YouTube channel. You can find the link in the show notes. Now let's get to the program. So hi there, podcast listeners. Thank you so much for coming back to the Authors of the Pacific Northwest. And today I have the privilege of introducing you to a new friend of mine. So I'm going to call her my friend, um, Kim Taylor Blakemore. So Kim, say hi to everyone. Hello, everybody. Kim, I'm so glad we have you on the podcast. So let me tell you guys a little bit about how I met Kim. Um, I was involved with, and I'm not going to say it right, the Jolo Flocolo. <laughs> Jolo, Jolo Boca Flood PDX. There we go. PDX in Portland. <laughs> I'm just going to say that works. Um, <laughs> the poor gals, Margaret and, and uh, Elizabeth had tried me to get that down right. I wasn't doing it right. But um, Kim was one of the authors that was featured in that for the PDX um, event. And so I, I went to several of the events and Kim, I went to the historical fiction authors panel, of course, and that's where I met Kim. And I'm instantly Instagramming her while she's talking, Kim, can you come on my podcast? So <laughs> we have worked this out. We finally got her on the podcast. It's a few yeah. months later. <laughs> so, so Kim, I just revealed half of the first questions that I ask you, but why don't you share with the listeners? Um, first off, where do you live in the Pacific Northwest? I live in McMinnville, and that's in uh, sort of the northwest corner of the Willamette Valley. Yes. Uh, and I moved here very recently from Portland. So, Oh, okay. Very fun. Have you always been a Portlander? Were you originally raised? In I have not. I lived in Portland for 13 years. And mm-hmm. before that, I lived in Monterey, California, where I grew up. Well, 13 years, we can say you're a resident. <laughs> I'm, yeah, I think I'm, I'm getting close there. At your duck feet, right? <laughs> exactly. I, yeah. But well, this year I'm going to actually break down and get duck boots, which I oh, yes. never had, but I've wanted them the whole time. Oh, you have to have them. And we just, so listeners, you know, I record these um, in advance before they come out. So when this comes out, we're going to be heading into our spring rainy season. That's right. But we just got done with about three or four days of snow. How much snow did you get, Kim, in your area? We- Got two inches, but we had a massive ice storm. So yeah. I had a whole tree snap in half in the oh, front no. yard and in the backyard, two huge limbs off of a birch are <sighs> laying on the ground and across the neighbor's fence. Well, but thank goodness God the did. fence is brick. So, well, thank goodness it didn't knock your power out. <laughs> exactly. And you guys got a lot of snow. We did. I couldn't believe it. We measured at one point, and this is huge for us because um, I'm on the valley floor mm-hmm. in my area. And so we got seven inches at one point. What? And then I think it was, I think we did end up with a foot by the end of it. I couldn't believe it. I had snow when I took the dogs out, it snows way up my calf on my boots. And I'm like, okay, I'm not used to this. This is fun. Let's go in. I'm done. (laughs) I know it is such a strange event for us because Mm -hmm. we, you know, this is our time of grim and gray and rainy. Yeah. Yeah. So it's so fun when we get this and I'm sure people in Ohio right now, I think they're at eight inches and it started five minutes ago. Yeah. Yeah. They're like, what are you complaining about? So what are you talking about? It's a funny (laughs) phenomenon for anybody that lives in the Northwest. You're going to laugh about this, but my daughter came over and she's older. She's 24. She came over and she goes, okay, so what's the deal with people in snow shovels here in the Northwest? We don't get enough snow. Why do they have snow shovels and snow blowers? And we were laughing because our neighbors all around us 
they're older, you know, retirees, God love them. They're out there shoveling. And I'm like, did they only buy it for this one event? And they've had it in their shed this whole time. Like, yeah, I can use my snow shovel. Exactly. It's going to melt in two days. Why are we shoveling? (laughs) Exactly. But you know what it is? is I think it's because of the ice underneath. I think so. Okay. We'll give it that. That is treacherous. We have to, we have to give it that. Okay. I'll give you that. I was like, "Mm, people stop with the shoveling. I have, I do not own a raincoat. You don't own, you know, neither I do, do I. I do not own a raincoat. I just wear my jean jacket and go like, it'll dry. Yep. That's, that's a you, Pacific Northwest. That is such versus. a Pacific Northwest thing. Cause when I go out with my friends, um, if we're anywhere, not, if I have to travel or whatever, and it starts raining and everybody's pulling out their umbrellas and stuff. I'm like, what is wrong with you? What guys? is with the umbrella? I'm like, <laughs> yeah. I'm like, uh, I have one in the back of my car yep. behind the seat. And I don't think I've ever opened it. I have two, one at the front door, one at the back door, and I never open them. I go out for walks with the dogs in the rain. I, I just don't, I yep. don't even use yep. them. Because, you know, here's the, another thing. Boy, we're really talking about Northwest weather, but this is good. So people that aren't from the Northwest, you might not understand this. Here's the thing I've always hated about using an umbrella when I'm driving my car. So you get the umbrella, it's soaking wet. You have to get it into your car. So now you're getting all this water all over you and your car, and you might as well have not used an umbrella to begin with. There you go. So that's my philosophy of umbrellas. Okay, Pacific Northwest. Woo! <laughs> I love it. No, it's a lot of fun. So Kim, share with us a little bit about your background. Um, You and I were talking before we hit record about some of the exciting things I'm doing. We have a little bit of shared background. Um, So share with our listeners a little bit about yourself. Um, First, are you an author full time? Kind of let's walk through that process for you. Great. So yes, I write uh, historical mysteries now, and um, I am very close to being a full time author. But I also have a novel coaching program too that I do. Okay. So both of those, and ah. we will we'll, we'll see what what occurs with them. I'm really growing that this year, and mm-hmm. of course writing books. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, kind of feels like we have to do as authors more than just write books. I feel like you have to have like some yeah. other little niche to move into to be able to create a decent income out of it. <laughs> Yeah, I think that um, I like it because I came from teaching to begin with. Mm-hmm. So my very original teaching, I was a, had a, a my my master's is in orientation and mobility for the blind. Nice. So I started out teaching blind and visually impaired adults mm-hmm. cane travel and mm-hmm. um, travel, and then I moved into teaching at a business college. Everything from computer programs to business classes to English classes. Yeah, yeah, I know that. I still love teaching, you know, so I was like, I really wanted to, to take what I've learned and as I'm learning as a writer and give that to other people. And I think there's a lot of times that people, you know, writing a novel is really lonely. Mm -hmm. So you're in a room by yourself and you're hoping it works and you are making your own deadline if it's your first book. Mm-hmm. And then it's like, I don't want to do it anymore. I don't, you know, the doubt creeps in. Mm-hmm. The self-doubt is a and real thing. The yeah. not, not really knowing where you are in the story arc or what's happening with mm-hmm. the characters. And, and, and I really wanted to, I, I taught in um, with PDX writers in Portland, and that was a lot more prompt-based generative writing. And I was mm-hmm. like, I really want to hit the novelist, help them. Yeah, uh, that have that much longer process. So, you know, the it started with just workshops on manuscript, and then I had longer workshops for historical fiction novelists. I'm going to do another one of those this summer, um, and then just really long. So it's literally people have worked with me for. I've had people for two years now working on their novel and other ones, some people I do developmental editing for who have published before. So it's a very different process for them. Oh yeah. But it's a lot, you know, I kept hearing like, I need accountability. I need someone to get me that high level feedback. Plus then, you know, Mm -hmm. what's going on every week. And, and Mm -hmm. it's like, you have to turn something into me every week. No, I love that. I think that's a really valuable model and a valuable aspect, especially, I don't know about every other genre because I'm, I'm currently writing historical fiction and I feel like we as historical authors 
can go forever on a manuscript, especially when Mm -hmm. we start doing research and we start right. I mean, it can go forever and having that accountability is so very important. But before we dive deeper in this, I want to backtrack a little bit because I'm curious (laughs) because I have a question. Um, How did you get started in the very first aspect of, of helping individuals that were blind? Did you come from a family with that background or how did you land into that? You know, that's one of those weird things you have in life. So mm-hmm. I had in college, I was an actress. I had a theater company in Los Angeles and I kept looking at it going, I don't want to work in TV and film and I don't want to be a gypsy and travel the country mm-hmm. and be an actor. So it's like, what can I do? And I was literally watching TV during this huge recession in Los Angeles. I couldn't even get a job. Every job they're like, you're overqualified for. I'm like, I'm an actor. How can I be overqualified for this job? I'm like, what am I going to do? And so I was watching TV and there was a documentary on guide dogs for the blind. And I was like, that is something I could do that lets me give back. Mm -hmm. So I immediately started finding where's the school that teaches something like this. And in Mm -hmm. Los Angeles is one of the, gosh, at the time, I think there was only nine schools that taught orientation and mobility for the blind. So Mm -hmm. I contacted them. I said, I would like to know more about this field. And they're like, okay, why don't you go watch someone teach at a school? So this is not with um, dogs. So that's a Mm -hmm. very different program. Yeah. But I went and watched this guy teach uh, middle school kids, take them out and teach them cane travel and orientation skills, et cetera. And I was like, wow, this is a very cool job. So I went back and they're like, I said, that's very cool. I really like that. And, and it's very different from theater. I don't want to do theater anymore. And I don't want the silly jobs you have while you're doing theater. Yeah, right. Yeah. Oh yeah, exactly. So, the waitress. The oh my God. The waitress. You know, I don't know about you if you've waitress and this is completely going off topic, but I used to have nightmares about waitressing. They were the worst nightmares of my life. Honestly, I have to admit, I didn't have an actual table waitressing job, but I worked in a deli behind the counter and that was enough for me. My very first job was fast food. And then it was that job. And I'm like, that is enough for me, but customer service skills, I excelled at them after those jobs. I learned how to read. You learn them from those jobs for sure. Um, Yeah. So I uh, went in and I interviewed at the school and the woman was like, well, we would like to have you in the program. We only take three people a quarter. Oh, and I was like, what? (laughs) She, she She said, what we like is that you have no bad habits. Yeah. You're coming in and we can really, really let you, you're coming with a clean slate. Mm -hmm. And um, it was great. It was a really great job. I ended up moving to Colorado and, and working at the Colorado Rehabilitation Center. I taught adults. Um, It was great. And I can imagine just from my mind, not knowing the job itself, but I can imagine the communication style that you would have to have is very articulated well. So then mm-hmm. when you transfer into that, into adult education, when you started teaching, you know, in college, it probably really lended well to communication. <laughs> I could imagine. Yeah. That's what I'm guessing. Actually, it was while I was teaching at the rehab center, I had moved from Los Angeles to Boulder, Colorado. Mm-hmm. And the first winter, was like, I, I didn't understand. I didn't understand. Like I had to get up at six in the morning and scrape my car and my hair was really long and it would freeze because I'd taken no. a shower. So it no. click, click around my head, you know? And that was when I started writing because I was like, I don't know what to do because I don't ski. Yeah. Yeah. Oh no, I don't either. I can't ski. I kill myself. I ski. Yeah. So I was really into history always my whole yeah. life. And I really fell in love with the, um, historical society and the the historical museum in Denver is outstanding. Mm -hmm. And I would literally take the bus into Denver just to hang out there and do a lot of, go to all the little small towns and learn about history. And that's when I first started writing my first book. So, so let's talk a little bit about that. Um, uh, Going backwards, because the book we're going to talk about that I've already read is going to come out in March. So by the time you guys are listening to this, everybody, it's already out. So make sure you get it because it's really good. Um, and I'm not just saying that because I'm talking to Kim. It's because I'm the critical historical 
reader. And so um, just because it's the genre I love. Mm -hmm. Um, So talk with us a little bit about your writing journey. Have you always written um, historical fiction or in, in since this one's historical fiction mystery, has that always been your genre? I started out, the first book was uh, middle grade historical set Mm -hmm. in the depression of Colorado. And I was born in Denver. So I had a really great time talking to people who'd lived on the plains during uh, the depression that, you know, they didn't have electricity out there until like 1952. Mm -hmm. And so I've always been, history has always been my thing. So that was historical fiction. Then Bowery Girl is set in 1883, New York. Mm-hmm. And that's like straight up historical fiction. Yeah. Um, then The Companion is a historical psychological thriller and as is After Alice Fell. Yeah. So um, And so those two are both set in the same area of New Hampshire. The Companion set in 1855. After Alice Fell is set right after the Civil War in 1865. Yeah. So where was the, the jumping off point for you as an, a historical author um, from writing historical accounts, you know, having a, a historical fiction to the mysterious part of things. Cause that's the part that I love the most about this book when Alice fell was that it was totally mystery, but I've never really in my mind thought about writing historical mystery as much until I read your book and I'm like, huh, there's a lot of interesting stuff that happens in history that has happened in history that could be, used. So where did that switch for you? Did you start really falling in love with that genre because you're reading more of it? Or is it just how the story's laid out? Um, the, the, um, I, here, you can stop <laughs> right there. <laughs> so it really started with the companion and that with the character in the companion is uh, in prison and about to be hung, mm. hanged for her crimes of killing two people in the house she worked at. Mm -hmm. And that started from a vision I had of a woman in a white cell with a very high window, very uh, sharp light. And she was sitting in a chair and she turned to me and said, stories move in circles. And I I was like, what the (laughs) heck? So I pulled out my notebook and just started writing her voice. And then I let it go aside. I tried to write another uh, straight historical fiction set after World War II. Mm -hmm. And I edited that one to death. When we get to talking about writing, I want to talk over editing. So don't. Okay, good. We we will go there because it's a problem. (laughs) Yeah, you can kill books and I've done it. Yeah. Um, So that character sort of stayed with me for a while and I knew it was going to end up being very gothic-y and and I never called it a mystery. I said, you know, she killed the people. You don't know why. Mm -hmm. So or or she may or may not at the time when I wrote it, that's what I thought. Uh, By the time it was edited through the edits is you don't know if she killed these people or not. And that was the point of the story is who really did it by the end. And then uh, I had a two book deal. So that's the brand. It's yeah. historical thrillers with a gothic edge, very fierce and wicked women, yeah. that yeah. sort of thing. Um, and I was like, what am I going to write next? Uh, and I, my brother sort of helped me talk, talk me through the topic. And I, he's like, you, you just got to be the queen of his gothic fiction. And I'm like, <laughs> Thank you, Casey, my brother. And I, <laughs> I was on a plane and I pulled out my notebook and I was like, what is like the most gothic thing you could possibly have? Let's do an asylum. Yeah. So yeah. I started writing it and I said, I'm going to set it. I'd already gone to New Hampshire to do research and I'd already been past the asylum there. So I had an idea of where it was and had done some research on it for the companion. And I just started writing and Marion, the lead character was right on page one, looking at her dead sister. Yeah. And I'm like, that's the story. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's brilliant. And I was wondering how you picked it or it picked you, you know, I knew there had to, you have had to mess around with some research around how females were treated in silence and history, because it's very clear in, and uh, listeners we're talking about after Alice fell the book that I read, I haven't read the other ones, but they are on my reading list. Um, and it's very, very clear that you've picked up and highlighted the possible t- terrible mistreatment of women in asylums um, for 
ridiculous reasons women were put in asylums um, for being hysterical when it was just normal life, right? So, so I found that very interesting. I was wondering how that came to you. So did it come through the, did you have somebody um, in your past in this situation or was it just, it came to you from your research? Well, the story itself came from writing it and just letting the people talk on the page. I, I really like to, to sort of audition books and let them go and see what the voice is and what the story is. And that one just first page was the first page that I wrote is literally the first page of the book. That's I, great. It hasn't changed from that. And that's kind of how I knew. And then I have to go through about 50 pages before I decide if it's going to stick as a book. Mm-hmm. Um there's a lot of misnomers about women tre- being treated in prison that get sort of over dramatized. And one is they're hysterical, uh, their husbands hate them, they read novels, uh, whatever it is. They were had postpartum depression, et cetera. Is that true that people were put in prisons? Yes. Uh, not prisons, in asylums because of those things? Yes, at certain asylums. But as you know, writing historical fiction and being a researcher, you have to be detailed and specific to the area you're writing about. Mm-hmm. So yeah, yeah. The, I happen to have a rock star librarian who works at the New Hampshire State Library. And I had seen her for the companion. She actually got me in touch with the archivists at the state archives. And I saw real materials for the prisons when I wrote the companion and found a real murderess at the time. Um, but when I contacted her about this book, she said, we need to get into the asylum. <laughs> I love her. And, like and I love this woman. She's yeah. amazing. Yeah. Rebecca Stockbridge. She is my rock star. I, mean, I literally I'm gonna, her and go, I got to bring her on my podcast so she can talk about how she You have to get her on. I will get you her info. Okay. because I will bring her on because this is like right up my alley. <laughs> she in the companion, she would like write me. She, first, I'm like, I don't know what happens with the woman in prison. This is very very short thing. She goes, oh, I have all the prison records. Would you like them? So she had all the reports from the warden. So she had the reports from the uh, New Hampshire Asylum for the Insane also are sitting in that library. So the peoples um, who were in the asylum, their records are sealed. And actually, Mm -hmm. we couldn't get into the asylum. It's falling apart. It's dangerous. We contacted the manager. He's like, no way. No. So I was doing a lot of Google maps and looking at it up above at the same time I was reading the reports. So at that particular library, uh, excuse me, that particular asylum, uh, they had very specific rules that when someone was brought into the asylum, whether a man or a woman, there had to be a second person there with them. Mm -hmm. So this asylum was created by the Quakers Mm -hmm. and the Quakers felt that it was fresh air and industry that was Mm -hmm. going to help people have respite from their unease. Mm -hmm. And that is how it started. So it was all good intentions. And, Mm -hmm. and, and this is the thing about historical fiction to me is when you write it, you need to write as they thought things were. Yeah. Yeah. So we can see some very horrid, horrid, um, you know, ways people were treated treatments that were done that may not have been horrid to, what mm-hmm. they thought at the time. Cause right when this book was, it was phrenology, yeah. uh, ice baths, really horrible things. As you yeah. know, Alice's head is put in a box and yeah. she's tied down with that, but it was too, they felt with that box of blackness that you could control the mania because you're mm-hmm. taking out all the outside, all the stimulus, mm-hmm. but Alice in the book is afraid of the dark. So this is a terrible place to put her, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, So these these were incredible records they were given. I was looking at my notes uh, as right before this and there was uh, each form of disease. So there's 53 people in the asylum for acute mania, which would be more like uh, bipolar Mm -hmm. uh, manic episodes and then chronic mania, dementia, senility, melancholy, Mm. epilepsy, which was a common, that to me was really uh, sad. Mm-hmm. Um, monomania, obsession with one thing, mm. right? Idiocy, constitutional obliquity. This one, I was like, what? I know, what is that? 
That is a deviation from moral rectitude or sound mind. Now, there's where you get those things about the that's women's a little, that's area, right? Area that's right that there. little gray area where they grab the, the women. Yeah, yeah. There's a very loud woman who won't shut up. <laughs> they had one person there who was not insane. That's how oh. they were marked. And this person actually lived there uh, and tended the gardens and oh. was told, I, you, you're not insane. And they said, I've known no other place. Oh. How interesting. So they stayed there. But I didn't end up using that asylum in the book. I ended up making my own up. And one mm-hmm. of the reasons was, is I could not get enough material on who ran the asylum mm-hmm. and the treatments used at that specific asylum. And I really don't want to denigrate or make someone bad who wasn't. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That's so good. I That's just couldn't good. do it. I'm like, ah, just set it in Harbor again and make up your own asylum. You can make them do all the things you want with the, the yeah. research you have. And right there is such a cue, huge, I don't know what the word is. It's not coming to me. Um, standard for researching well. I can't give a better example of um, an author from what you just said that you, you had so much um, authority, I would say, or um, authenticity for yourself of knowing that you did not want to write something that wasn't accurate from what you found and accurate enough that you can base it on there. And so you just used what you learned and constructed your own world around that. And mm-hmm. I think that's really, really valuable to, to know. It's the one thing that I, I struggle with. Um, when I help authors with research or something is that we got to still be very, very careful about what we say and how we use that research in, especially in fiction work, because mm-hmm. it, it should inspire you to be able to write your stories. But like you said, we shouldn't like terrorize people from the past, I guess you can say. I don't want to make someone a villain who wasn't. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And I, I just think that's so good. That's so good. And I'm just fumbling around with what I'm trying to say. It's been one of those long days. Okay. So <laughs> it's okay. So let me ask you snow and ice. Come on, yeah. give yourself a break. I know. So Kim, <laughs> let's jump into the writing process. And, and I'm mm-hmm. going to start that with a burning question because I'm a librarian and I'd love to um, ask this question of authors for your writing process for this. You already kind of talked about with Alice Feld, the story kind of came to you by by working on the other book. So then did you write the story and, or, and then you had to go back and kind of fill in some research or were you simultaneously researching or using research from the past? My point is this, (laughs) did research help you at the beginning in that aspect, or did you scramble to get your research facts at the end? (laughs) I have a very specific process I use to do it. And it's mostly because I had a deadline for this book. So it was written completely in 10 months. Oh, wow. And I had already done a lot of research of the time and the area during the companion. So I had that. So I already uh, had an idea of the mores of the 18th, uh, excuse me, the 19th century and that decade. Yeah. Um, But I will start with reading some overview things. So, and what I mean by that is not Wikipedia. Thank you. (laughs) I will find books that were written nowadays. Like I have uh, one, I don't know, Murder Most Foul or Hawkers and Walkers about people and things in the time. That gives me a very quick overview of things and maybe some little elements. But after that, I look for books and newspapers that were written in the time period. So I have a book of a doctor's diaries from the civil war. And that's what gave me the nurses outlook that's for Marion in this book. Yeah, yeah. Um, the newspapers gave me how they thought, what they thought was interesting, what was funny, what was going on at the time. Yeah. Um, and I, you can find these, uh, you can find diaries. So I, I read an entire set of not all of them, but because there was so many, but letters from a woman to her husband, during the civil, from before the civil war, through the civil war, and then her son growing up. So oh, that's it's a fantastic. really interesting idea about how they thought of the war. So, um, you know, it's like those little tiny things. You're a historian, you understand this. So when Marion goes to war to be a nurse, it's not because she wanted a career, but it was because she was a firm abolitionist and it was her way to stop slavery. Yeah. 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 And therefore 
there were some sacrifices that had to be made. And exactly. So the sacrifice was not selfish in letting Mm -hmm. Alice be taken care of by her brother. Yeah. Right. So those are sort of the things. So I don't read, once I start writing, I don't read anything that's after the date of the story. So the story I'm working on now is 1877. All my things, all my great readings are books from that time period and before. Yeah. I love it. Thank you. That's exactly what I wanted to hear. (laughs) But that's because I'm fishing for it. But honestly, it's something that's very paramount in my mind is that, that I appreciate that you didn't start with Google or Wikipedia. You actually started with primary sources, which is the best sources for authors. And I can't tell you how many times authors will tell me they don't even know what I'm talking about. And I have to, I love sharing that with them. That's why librarians and author researchers like you are so incredibly important because there's a lot of research. And if you don't know how to find it, like I said, I have a librarian I call, Mm -hmm. I don't even call, I email her. Like (laughs) this book I'm working on now is about spiritualism in, in, the same period in New Hampshire. She's like already gone to the basement because they have all the stuff there. I love it. She's like, it's totally haunted down there, but I'm going. (laughs) And see, but that's the thing. That's the beautiful thing that I'm trying to really pitch in my new world as the author's librarian is that authors and librarians can have very natural partnerships that are Mm -hmm. so beneficial. And I just think that we, we lose sight of that um, Mm -hmm. with the digital age where it's so easy to just jump on and ask a question but there's so many flaws in that, but we won't go into that. Cause that's my whole YouTube channel. That's my whole thing. But, <laughs> uh, but I love to hear why, how you started. So in your writing process, do you usually write your first draft and then how, how do your drafts go about? And you're traditionally published with all your work. If I remember mm-hmm. right. That's yeah. correct. Okay. So that's walk correct. us through the original like writing process. So the writing process is very, I'm very disciplined about, looking for, well, I have deadlines now. So it's, um, even if you're not, uh, don't have a contract, have a deadline because it lets you backtrack what you want to do. So I, I pretty much know my books are going to be about 80,000 words and 30 chapters. And I like to write 10 or 12 page chapters. So that allows me to say, how many scenes can I put in a chapter? Mm -hmm. Um, and then, uh, after that, I'm not an outliner. I basically know that opening scene. I know a few main elements that I want. The characters conflict between the two or three main characters. And then I will write at the ending. That may or may not be the ending, but Mm -hmm. it's something to shoot for. Because I think if you don't know where that it goes, where your last resonant, you know, image of that book is you you're going to write along and you may be wanting to get to Chicago and you end up in Duluth and you're like how did I end up in Duluth it's so true you have to do that ending a little bit (laughs) so um so it's I write straightforward I don't do a lot of you know yeah moving ahead because my characters surprise me and they tell me things I really love leaving things sort of loose and all these sort of tendrils and tangents and Mm -hmm. then as I get further in and really not until I'm in the absolutely I'm going to die of anxiety in the end of act two because I think nothing's going to work and nothing is working but at that point if I can take a step back I can look at all those things that I laid out there before and Mm -hmm. say, that thing is a great thing. Pick that up. And it can be something really small. It can be like that weird round mirror that you had in act one. You need to use that for a Mm -hmm. plot point in act three. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So it's very much, I, you know, I, I, uh, I don't know what else to say about it. I know that's right forward. Oh, I know what I, and I, this is where I was going to talk about the death of books by over-editing. Yes, let's talk about because um, I'm like, dead now is, right now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, do, you're like, ah! <laughs> um, I write the chapter or the day's work, which may just be a scene. Mm-hmm. Um, and the only thing I do with it is do a spell check and one read through to see if big sections can need to be moved. And mm-hmm. then I move on. And if I see something like, ah, oh, that doesn't make sense. I have another little notebook that I just jot a note, change this, look back on this. And I keep a list of those notes, but I keep moving forward because mm-hmm. I don't know what, 
if I need to change or what I need to change. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So that allows me to finish the book. So if you need words and you need pages and then you're like, wow, I can take, I try and build it. So I have about three or 4,000 extra words in there mm-hmm. that I can cut. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> and I write very, as you can, I write pretty densely. So my books are, you know, I try and like have things do double duty yeah, because I'm not a long book reader. If I see a book and it's like 500 pages, I'm like, no, I'll never yeah. make it to the end. Yeah. I can't. I I just won't. But that, um, anyway. So I had had a book that was called Under the Pale Moon, and I loved it. It was set after World War II in Monterey, about a husband and wife and what they their relationship after the war. And my God, I edited the first 10 chapters of that. For two years. Oh, no. And they were so beautiful. And I kept going back and fixing it. It was so beautiful. And then I couldn't do, I couldn't do anything else. Yeah. Because I killed it. I just like took all the life out of it. And, you know, books and writing, I think, have to have some roughness and wildness and freedom and energy in the words. So yeah. that was a big lesson for me in over editing. And yeah. I will never go back to it. Yeah. You yeah. know? So and you so. So yes. when you get done with writing the first draft and keeping that long running list of notes, yes. and you go back oh. and you edit, how do you stop yourself from over editing at that time? Well, at that time, I've, you know, I've, I've gotten really good at sort of doing editing on the fly also. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I can't even, that's just from practice, mm-hmm. but then I'll go back and take, so the book's done. And then I will take like a week and go through all those notes that I have and see what needs to be changed from those notes and what I can throw out because I changed the story anyway. Um, So it's like, if you say, Oh, I'm adding a new character, but I'm on page 120. I need that character in the first chapter. Don't go back to the first chapter and put it in. Pretend you did. Yeah. And can just continue on with the character because then the character builds himself. You go back in, you put them in, you drop them in where you need it. And, and that's a little, you know, it's efficient. It's a time saver. And so then I'll do that. I'll go through that list. And then I have two uh, colleagues of mine. One's an amazing writer in New Zealand who I just love her work. And I send it to them and I say, just look over it as a reader and give me your thoughts and notes and what's falling apart. What do you see? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, And then they send me back lovely, two or three pages of things. And I look through that and decide what is similar. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So all readers have different tastes, but mm-hmm. what is the, it, what are the things that are the same in here? Because that means I have a problem to fix. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, after I've done that, then it goes. Yeah. Goes I love it. Editor. I love it. You have nailed in on all the things I usually ask in questions. So I appreciate that. I don't have to ask all of my questions, but the one thing that I think is so valuable is that your self-editing process, you've honed in on how not to destroy a story. And that's sad that that story is gone. Maybe it'll revive someday in your future. We hope, right? (laughs) I don't know. You know, that was so much a like kind of a dark romance. And now I'm like all in, it's got to have dead bodies now. I don't don't know what happened to my, you know, I I turned into like the modern Daphne du Maurier. Where's the murder? I have some um, mystery murders in my works, in my life. (laughs) Because it's like, oh, I have every genre. I mean, but seriously, the mystery murder thing, because I'm always the one in a movie like, yeah, that wouldn't have happened. Oh, I know who killed so-and-so. Exactly. In the very first scene. My husband's like, can you just not for once not predict? And I'm like, no, I know it's happening. <laughs> so I but- will never forget my father and I went and saw when I was really young, he took me to see Agatha Christie's The Mirror Cracked. Oh. And so we're sitting in it and the first scene starts and he turns to me and he says, blah, blah, did it. And I was like, you just ruined the whole movie. I know, I know. (laughs) I've had to learn to keep my mouth shut. But the thing is, is that they don't believe me unless I say it at some point. Because we'll get out of a movie or something. I'll be like, yeah, I knew that was going to happen. Like, no, you didn't, mom. No, you didn't. Okay, so I'm going to tell it at a strategic time. So you (laughs) knew I knew it. But because I have to be right. (laughs) There we go. Okay, so um, there was another point. Oh, I wanted to make how I think it's wonderful that you have um, author friends that are also readers in the sense of a reader aspect of it. My writing dramatically changed when I was finally in the right writers group for me. 
And I, I ask a lot of authors about this because I know there are groups and companions and partnerships and writers groups that are detrimental to some authors. And it's been very discouraging for me, for them. For me, I was writing in the closet. Nobody knew I was writing. I was terrified to tell anybody because I, I have some severe dyslexia and things like that. So I knew my writing was never going to be clean right out of the gate. And so I'm like, I can't share this with anybody. And, um, but I got invited into a really great, strong writers group and none of them are historical fiction authors, which is amazing. And, um, they have been so great and we have deadlines. So we meet every two weeks. And even during COVID, I've made them all come on, on Zoom with me every two mm-hmm. weeks so that we can keep it up. That has expedited my writing process tremendously, but also their feedback has been so great and so constructive. It's helped me to learn the craft. It's helped me to, to learn where plot points needed to be fixed, or they even question historical values in some aspects, which was valuable for me because we can get in our own silo as a writer, <laughs> you know, be like, but this is how it's all in my head, but it's obviously not getting translated on paper for my reader to understand. Mm-hmm. So I think that's great that you have your, um, your two people that you send to. Do you have any other organizations or um, groups that you can recommend to somebody that might be listening to this podcast that doesn't have that yet and they don't know where to go or how to get started? Uh, I think if you're looking for, literary groups to go to and start understanding the genre you're writing in and be be networking with the reader, uh, writers in that. If you're women's fiction, I would suggest the Women's Fiction Writers Association. Very welcoming, great group of writers. Um, yeah, I could, I was in that to begin with and I vol- I loved it so much I volunteered for their agent pitch week and did all was the tech person for that for a year. Nice. Um, so you want to find things in your genre. So uh, international thriller writers, historical novel society, et cetera. But then look closer to home for if you have any writing communities that that read and write, I would, I would suggest if you're doing that. I don't personally do writing groups. I don't mm-hmm. like critique groups. I think mm-hmm. that um, for me, one or two people who see the full thing helps me better than people Mm -hmm. seeing pieces. And the reason is that I've seen enough writers in groups, as you talked about, some are can be detrimental. And I don't just mean emotionally. No, it's in getting over edited too early. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And -hmm. people, including yourself, don't know the arc of your book until it's done. So it can throw things off, I think, from from what you're writing that and that's also why I do novelitics is to let a writer work with somebody so I I can see story and ask story questions so a good group like it sounds yours is is asking and knowing what those story questions are Mm -hmm. without changing how you're writing what you're writing I've been incredibly fortunate and that was one reason why I was terrified to even get into any sort of group before because I've heard the horror stories Mm -hmm. um and I'm I will admit I'm sensitive. I mean, I don't know any author that is not really truly sensitive, but I'm very sensitive um, in, cause you know, when you're, when you're first starting out, I think there's a stage where you have to hear from other people. You have to get feedback. You have to get the craft yes. from yes. other people. But then I think when you do get the stage, cause I was been thinking about it this last week that I think authors might get to a stage where they don't necessarily need that kind of a structure anymore. They might need more of a mentorship or they need mm-hmm. friendship of readers and writers, like you mentioned. So it sounds like- I think you still need to do constantly, constantly work on craft. All the right? time. So <laughs> it's, it's all the time. And, you know, I'm lucky in a way that I teach it. So I'm always looking for it. Yeah. Well, you know, you know what they say? The um, you got to really know your stuff if you're going to teach, right? Mm-hmm, and so mm-hmm. I think the best teachers are those that struggled in specific areas, and so then they had to figure it out, and then it's an aha moment they have to share with others. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. So yeah, so I'm constantly looking at that. Yeah. Awesome. 
Well, let me ask you about your publication journey, because that's always mm-hmm. something that's very fascinating to me and my listeners as well. Um, so you've always been self, I mean, sorry, you've always been traditional published. Yes. So yes. your first book, you did the whole agent pitch or how did that go for you? I did. And I'll separate this into two things because Sissy Funk and Bowery Girl were written before all of this wealth of um, communication we have with, it yeah. was right before everything exploded in terms of the internet and all that. So that was really like, go to the bookstore, look in the back of books, see who thanked their agent, make a list yeah. and pitch the agent. <laughs> yep. So I had for Sissy Funk, I knew it was a young adult book and I pitched um, 27 agents in New York. And the very last one I pitched was George Nicholson. Uh, he was at Sterling Lord Liter- Literary Agency I didn't know. I only knew he was thanked in many books. Yeah, uh, yeah. He turned out to be a great agent for me because he was an editor before he became an agent. He started Yearling Press, um, really big, big editor in New York. And I worked with him on that book and on Bowery Girl. So those were, uh, he did a lot of good edits on those before they went out. So th- those uh, took I, I can't even, I mean, I don't think it relates to nowadays. So let me move on from those. But that was who I had. He unfortunately passed away. And I had decided I wasn't going to do any young adult fiction anymore. I didn't really like it. It wasn't my genre I liked. Um, Bowery Girl is right in the middle. I would, you know, it's 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 sold both as young adult and as women's fiction. So yeah. Which whatever. Lot, some young adult fiction can cross over a lot yeah. to um, female yeah. readers that don't want the junk that they can get in other <laughs> genres. <laughs> so I, I took a while off and tried to like, go, what do I want? What, what do I want to write? And that's when I wrote the book that I edited to death. Mm-hmm. So that yeah. ended up, um, then I wrote another book that was set kind of in the same time, but it was a literary novel and it was like a whole bunch of na- navel gazing and beauty and was meant nothing. So <laughs> It was for you. It was all for just you. Well, it let me see I could still finish a book. And then, you know, and then I was just kind of like learning. I wanted to just learn more and and Mm -hmm. start teaching writing more and did that. And then, you know, I started writing The Companion. And I had a very different process with that. So for readers who were, look, okay, I'm going to stop for one second. Sure. If you're in the middle of writing your first book, don't listen to me anymore because <laughs> you should be concentrating on your finishing your story and doing yeah. the best, strongest yeah. story and not worry about what I'm going to talk about now. And I think yeah. that interferes and gets in the way of just write the story, be bold and be wild and finish the story. I love okay, it. So okay. now for the writers who have finished their stories <laughs> and have edited them. Now you can, um, <laughs> now we, now, now you can listen. Um, <laughs> So I basically did a very similar thing, but in an online way, as I did before, is I wanted to look and see who was thanking their agent. And I also wanted to hear different agents, uh, what they wanted and like kind of personally wanted. So where had they been interviewed? Who can I read and, and do that? So I really looked at historical fiction and historical mystery. Those were sort of the right uh, agents I was looking for. Mm-hmm. And, you know, people look for different things in agents. And I noticed there's two camps of agents. There's the agents who love to edit and help Mm -hmm. you get that book all in shape even more. And there's agents who think the editor edits. And so they pick the story they think will sell to that agent. Gotcha. Um, So, and I didn't really think of that at the time. Either way would have been fine. But um, I really did want to be with a big house. And I wanted it to be about sales mm-hmm. to sell um, to a bigger publisher. So I narrowed my list down and I created my query letter and I sent it out and I got a couple hits from, I think I sent out 20 queries and got hits for partials for three from three of them. And then one of them wrote and basically said she couldn't figure out where to sell it. Well, this was the companion. Mm-hmm. She couldn't figure out where to sell it. Then the next one basically said it was the most horrible piece of garbage she'd ever read (laughs) in very nice words, but I can read between lines. Yeah, (laughs) Luckily I have a, I have a pretty thick skin now. So, well, you got to, I was like, dang, (laughs) you know, 
you have to listen to what you tell people. So I tell people agents love book specific books, just like we as readers do. Yeah. Yeah. And it doesn't mean your book is bad. It means, you know, that that person wanted the white refrigerator, not the stainless steel. That's basically it. It's about that resounding feeling and that partnership that develops. Exactly. You know, so I totally exactly. That. Not that I, I, mean, I don't know what I'm I, talking about. <laughs> I'm, I was super impatient because it was like three weeks of waiting for those. And then I was like, something's wrong with my query because I'm not getting the the hits I want. So I changed. I, I This is where I went to women's fiction writers. They have a query workshop. Mm-hmm. And I, I was already a member of their group but you had to write your pitch that goes in your query letter in 55 words. That's really a challenge. And I did. And I said, that's it. So I'm just going to put that line in. That's going to be the pitch. So it's like, hello, these are the agents I've, you know, I saw you, I heard your interview, whatever. Here's my one line of what the story is. This is what I published before. Thank you. And that was it. It was like half a page letter. Liam hanging. <laughs> and that got more hits. And then I was lucky enough. Uh, I mean, I have a very different story than other people because mm-hmm. a lot of people go through a lot of agents. It takes yeah. a long time. Yeah. I basically got an agent from that query in a week and he sold it. He literally sent it to the agent who bought the editor who bought it that five minutes after me agreeing to work with him. I love it. That's and then great. three weeks later, it was sold. And then so, you had on the back of that, it was a two book deal. Yes. That's so it was sort of a two book deal. We called it a two book deal. So I pitched another book to her when, uh, before the companion came out and that sold. That's great. So that's great. That's such great. Advice. And that's after Alice fell. So yeah, that's with Lake Union Publishing. Yes. They're an imprint yeah. of Amazon Publishing. So yeah. Can you explain that to me, if you don't mm-hmm. mind, what, what, what's the understanding of that? Because I, I don't know what that is. So that doesn't mean others listening don't, but I have no clue what that is. <laughs> sure. So there's the big five publishers, mm-hmm. right? And then there's the, the next big six, which is mm-hmm. Amazon publishing. So they had start, they've started, I don't know how many years ago, 12 years ago or something, a traditional publishing house and it's mm-hmm. got imprints in it. So mm-hmm. I'm with Lake Union Publishing and they gotcha. publish book club fiction, historical fiction. Thomas and Mercer publishes mysteries and thrillers. But they're managing all the royalties as if it's a traditional. It's exactly like house, a traditional house. So the traditional my, my yeah. first two books, one was with HarperCollins and one was with Viking. So it works exactly the same way. It's a traditional house. Gotcha. So you know, your, your book goes into that your acquiring editor, your editor edits it or has a developmental editor work on it. Also, um, you have copy it like, so it's, this is, this is classical traditional publishing. Mm-hmm. So yeah, yeah. the book goes off, off to the editor when you're done, she does her edits and gives you notes, you revise it, you may get another rewrite. Then when she and you were agreed on it, it goes to the copy editor. So at Lake Union, there's two two sets of copy edits mm-hmm. that you do with them. Then you have a line editor and then you have a proofreader. So yeah. all of yeah. this has happened with a style sheet behind yeah. it, So yeah. which I found fascinating because I didn't yeah. have a style sheet at Viking. Yeah. I'm yeah. like, what is this thing? Wait a minute. I called like 10 people John. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so the style sheet basically is a beat by beat of the chapters and then a list of your cast of characters, including dogs, horses, and pigs. Oh, that's bad. And your settings and the timeline, which is great because they're like, Hey, you had this set here, but it's really three days later than the scene before. And yeah, yeah, whatever. So, so then that's, as that is all happening, the house is also working on marketing materials and on the cover design. So all going together. And that's what I was going to ask about, because I think the part that I was confused about is that Amazon, so many people self-published through Amazon and, you know, through KP and all that. So that's where I was confused about was this, I didn't know if Lake Union um, Press was a small press taking it to Amazon for you on your behalf. No. Or if they were an imprint. So, so that makes sense to Yeah. So so KDP publishing and that part, the self-publishing is an absolutely separate yeah, com- business and unit yeah. from Amazon publishing. Okay. I love it. Well, I appreciate you sharing that with me because sure, of course. I don't of course. I mean, because I'm still just 
learning. There's so much to learn. And it seems like every year there's even new stuff to learn. So if you hear the dogs, I apologize, everyone. <laughs> I don't know why she's barking um, about the publishing industry. And that's why I wanted to ask the questions of authors, but yours was so unique to me because, and I didn't do any research on it. Um, so it, it was fascinating to me. And I thought you could clear that up for me, the difference of you know, what Lake Union is, who they are, because there's so many um, small presses out there that will do all of it for you, but it's a self-publishing really, but you're hiring somebody to do it for you. And, and that makes me nervous. So that's why I was like, you have to be, you know, there's, there's the big five, everyone wants to be there or with Amazon. I, there were a few editors that were interested in buying the book. And when my agent told me Lake Union was interested, I said, I want all my eggs in that basket. Mm-hmm. because I had read their books before mm-hmm. my books fit perfectly in the line. Nice. And I love their vision. So, and I, and I wanted to be traditionally published. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, and it's the whole thing. It's the, you know, you have an advance, you have royalties, yeah. Yeah. marketing, whatever. I mean, after Alice fell is a Amazon first reads right now, which is yeah fantastic yeah it's um, worthy of it for sure so that, well it's yeah it, it certainly helps yeah yeah I um, understand the traditional backbones my husband was in music industry for years so we actually had music contracts and music royalties and handlers I like to call them handlers <laughs> all of the little elements that go involved sure. in all of that so yeah. I understand all of that and I think that's why for me as I've been researching what I want to do I kind of go back and forth. Well, maybe I want to do independent. No, maybe mm-hmm. I want to do all Mr. And it's nice to say you don't necessarily have to make a choice anymore. You, can, you don't you have to make a choice anymore. <laughs> right. I agree. And it just depends on, for me, I, I think I'm a slow writer. So when I have to do marketing now, it's already mm-hmm. enough. I'm like, how would I do that if I was independently publishing? Yeah. I don't know how I would have the time. It would take so much. And, and it's not that I won't, because I always think, hmm, sometime maybe you will. Yeah. It's amazing how much um, authors have to market still, regardless of what kind of publishing they have have to market in general. So that's a whole new thing. But, you know, we're getting to the place of what we need to hear from um, after Alice fell. We have just chit-chatted so much. But before we do that, Kim, will you please tell us again your other titles, how people can maybe get those, and then set the stage for after Alice fell Kind of tell us the readers or listeners a little bit about the story or what you want to share before you go ahead and go on your reading. Okay. So my novels are the two YA novels or Sissy Funk and Bowery Girl and the historical thrillers are the companion and after Alice fell, you can get them on Amazon or bookstores, wherever you wish to buy them. Um, so After Alice Fell is set in New Hampshire in 1865, just after the Civil War, and Marion Abbott is the lead character. She's a widow. Uh, She has been a nurse in the Civil War, and she has come home to find her sister has been committed to an asylum and has died at the asylum. So the book starts with Marion going to the asylum, and the entire story is her figuring out what happened to Alice. So I think I'll start there and start with chapter one. I'll just do a little bit of a reading. Chapter one, Broder's House, Harborough, New Hampshire, August, 1865. Is it her? The ward attendant holds up the oiled tarp. He chews on his dark mustache, blinks and clears his throat. I am sorry, Mrs. Abbott, I must ask. I clasp and unclasp my reticule, the metal warm between my thumb and forefinger, the click comforting, steadying in this room with white tile walls and black grout. There's a singular circular grate in the corner, yellowed paint chips from the ceiling clog its pipe. The cold pushes through the floor, needles of ice that poke my thin-soled boots. Ill-chosen, meant for summer, not for this chill room. But I hadn't thought. I put on the first pair I found, and last night's stockings, too, hung from the bedpost because I was too weary to put them away. A note delivered, too blunt. Alice Snow deceased. Please collect. The driver who delivered the note had waited, slumped against his handsome and fanning his face with a folded newspaper. His horse, roan and swayback, drooled and ground his teeth. 
The air shimmered and blurred the edges of the fence and abandoned barn across the road. It was too early and already too hot. Here, I had missed an eyelet when buttoning my boots earlier, and now the leather cuts into my ankle. I rub the heel of my other shoe against it until the chafed skin burns. Paint chips drift into a crevice of the tarp's fabric, stick like snow to the crown of this dead woman's head. Neat, straight part and white gray skin. Strands of ginger hair, blood stippled, a tangle loose and dangling. A mottled stretch of bruising across her forehead. I lower my gaze to the floor. There are divots there, hollows and gouges. Her body is cooled by a leather strap block of ice. The body who is Alice. Alice so still. Alice under the tarp. Alice, my sister. She is not meant to be here, her mouth agape as if she were to share a thought, like she used to when she was very young, her finger to her lip, a shake of that ginger red hair, then Marion, I wonder, or Marion, it's an odd thing, her voice trailing away as she swallowed the words or clamped her jaw because I interrupted, finishing out whatever it was she wondered about or found odd. Everything in and of itself, Alice, is so very odd that one must just consider it normal. Otherwise, you'll drive yourself mad. The attendant stares at me. It's her. He lowers the tarp, pulling it up to her forehead. It's too short. Her left foot pops free, a dark welt across the bridge, crisscrosses of cuts, thin long toes. Maybe she'll wriggle them now, as she used to. Look, Marion, I'm royalty. Look at my middle toe. Look at its length. You'll need to sign the certificate. There, on the small desk by the square window that looks out on nothing, on a wall of brick and pipe, is the document. Smaller than I would expect, simple and harsh. Record number 4573. Name, Alice Snow. Sex, female. Date of birth, February 3rd, 1841. Age, 24, date of death, August 3rd, 1865, cause of death, accident, acute mania. Signed, Lemuel Mayhew, MD. I've seen too many of these, pinned too many to uniform lapels. I've seen so many dead, Antietam, Poplar Springs, Spotsylvania, men stacked on carts, tarps too short to hide the high arches and missing limbs and nails roughly cut. I've signed so many letters, whispered from the soon dead to their loves. Forgive me, help me, I am almost at heaven, mother. One signature, and Alice will be released. One signature to absolve this place of any responsibility for her slipping from the roof. Absolve the staff from finding her body splayed on the pebbled drive, half tangled in the sharp thorns of pink hedging roses. I dip the pen and hold it above the signature line. Ink beads. What time was she found? I keep my eyes on the ink, watch it soak and spread along the short edge. His foot scrapes the stone floor. You'd need to ask Dr. Mayhew. But Dr. Mayhew isn't here. He's upstairs with my brother. You are here, Mr. Stokes. Russell Stokes. Mr. Stokes. The ink is a river now, rippling around the paper, a black frame around my sister's name, her death, the date. When I hand it over, he'll place it in the brown folder with her name printed neatly on the edge. He waits for me to sign. He is as cold as I am, has his arms crossed over his barrel chest and fists curled round his elbows. His eyes are a muzzy hazel and flick with resentment. It's not his fault he's been assigned this duty. He taps his finger on the corner of the ice table. She didn't suffer. Yes, she did. I turn from the desk, holding out the official certificate, officially identifying the now official death of my sister, Alice Louise Snow, and watch as the attendant shoots a glance at it before setting it atop the folder. She's afraid of the dark. I take my gloves from my pocket and fumble them on. I must find my brother. There you go. Yay. So listeners, if you aren't hooked, I don't know why not. Because (laughs) when I read this book, the first chapter I was in two, two paragraphs in, I'm like, oh, I got to know what happened. (laughs) So very good, Kim. I love it. Very, very good. So listeners, 
Um, if you love the book, make sure you get um, all my show notes. So Kim, how can people find you? Do you have a website? What's your favorite social media channel? Tell us a little bit about that. Absolutely. You can find me at www.kimtaylorblakemore.com for the website and newsletter. And I also uh, use Instagram. That's my active place. It's Kim Taylor Blakemore Books. Nice. I love Instagram. It's my favorite one. <laughs> Me too. I love it. It's like positive and fun and great. It is, it is really lovely. Good. So here you are, listeners. Here's your Vicky's action item. Find the book, email Kim, let her know you've read it. Do a review for the book. Um, I can't remember, Kim, if my review, if I've done one or not. I know I've read the book, so there's probably going to be a review if I haven't done it on Goodreads and Amazon. And um, Kim, I would love to bring you back on my YouTube channel. So listeners, that's the author's librarian on YouTube with your author friend. So we can go a little deeper into the discussion of the relationship of authors and librarians and how successful. I think that would be fantastic. And absolutely. I will uh, get that together and we'll do that. Awesome, Kim. Well, thank you so much for being here. It's a pleasure meeting. I'm so glad I met you online. We live not very far from each other, but I know. COVID and we met online. So I know. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the podcast. I hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. Make sure you jump on the show notes and find the author, buy their books, write a review. And most importantly, you can find out more about me and my projects at one of my two websites www.squishpin.com or theauthorslibrarian.com. And until next time, this is Vicki J. Carter, the Authors Librarian, signing off.